But if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. If you didn't bring a copy, that's okay. Most of the verses are going to be on the screen this morning. We're in a series on revival. The reason we're in this series is because I believe with all my heart, the only hope that America has is to experience revival. The Bible says righteousness, godliness, exalts, makes a nation great. But sin is a reproach to any people. Understand, no politician can make America great. No political party can make America great. Only God can make America great. As his people turn to him in repentance, experience righteousness, we experience revival, then we will see America become great. But the question we have to answer is, what is revival? And so let me remind you of what revival is. Revival is a move of God among God's people that results in a spiritual awakening in the world. Revival is a move of God among God's people that results in a spiritual awakening in the world. Revival is a move of God. You cannot bring revival. I cannot bring revival. Together, corporately, we can't bring revival. Only God can bring revival. The Bible says, God, revive us again so your people may be glad or rejoice. Only God can bring revival. But you and I can do some things that puts us in a position, that puts us in a place where we can experience Revival, not only individually, but corporately as a people. Now, last week, we discovered the first step to revival, and that is we humbly cry out to God in repentance, confessing our sins. If we want to experience revival, we must first of all humbly cry out to God, acknowledging our sin, confessing and repenting of that sin. God told Solomon, In 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. You see, when we humbly cry out to God, acknowledging our sin, then God moves in our life, hearing us, answering us, forgiving us, and healing our land. We see that pattern over and over again in Scripture. God's people turn from God. God brings judgment on them. The people cry out to God in repentance. God brings deliverance. God brings revival. God brings healing. And the people experience God's blessing. Throughout the book of Judges, we saw that over and over again. And whenever God brought that blessing, God brought that revival, he called it peace in the land. And there was peace in the land for 40 years. There was peace in the land for 80 years. What that means is God moved in, God worked among them, and God brought revival. But today, as we continue looking at what we can do to experience revival, I want us to look at the second step to revival And to do that, I want us to look at a revival that happened in the Old Testament under King Asa. Now, let me give you a little bit of background, if I may. King Asa's great-grandfather was Solomon, the wisest king to ever rule in Israel. But his grandfather, Rehoboam, wasn't so wise. 
He took some unwise counsel, some ungodly counsel, and because of that, the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Well, Asa's dad, Abijah, wasn't such a good man either. The Bible says that he did just like his father, followed the evil ways of his father. And because of that, he ruled only three years. And during the time that he ruled, there was war after war after war. But Asa came on the scene. He sat on the throne of God's people. And the Bible tells us that there was peace in the land for 41 years. Now, I want you to listen to what it says about Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 2. It says, Asa did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the pagan shrines. And you may be asking, where did these foreign altars, these pagan shrines come from? Well, they came into the land, unfortunately, under Solomon. Solomon was this wise king. He was a good and godly king at the beginning of his reign. But unfortunately, his heart was turned away from God. He, he began to marry women, lots of women, who followed other gods. And before long, he began to follow those gods. And because of that, these pagan altars and these pagan shrines sprouted up all over the land. But now here's Asa. He comes in and he removes all of these foreign altars, these pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded the people of Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his law and his commands. Asa also removed the pagan shrines as well as the incense altars from every one of Judah's towns. So Asa's kingdom period of peace. Remember that phrase, peace, period of peace? It's a word that describes God moving, God working, God bringing revival into the land. And so Asa came. He encouraged the people to seek God. He tore down the pagan altars, the pagan idols, and the people of God experienced peace. And we don't know when, but we do know sometime early on in Asa's life, he made this decision to seek God. And that decision to seek God changed everything in his life. He removed these pagan altars. He destroyed everything that had to do with pagan worship. 1 Kings chapter 15 gives us a little more detail of what happened under Asa's rule. The Bible says that, that Asa banished the temple prostitutes. The Hebrew word used in 1 Kings 15 literally means sodomy, homosexual sin. You see, the people had become just like the world. They had begun having all of the habits and, and following all the ways that the evil people of the world followed. And the, world that it, the word that it uses in 1 Kings chapter 15 to describe him getting rid of the idols doesn't literally mean idols. The word literally means dung or crap. In other words, what Asa did is he got rid of all of the pagan crap in the land. He removed every single bit of it. And he commanded the people to seek God and obey God's commands. Asa was serious about his relationship with God. And he knew that if the people got serious about their relationship with God, with all of their heart, God would bless them. And God did bless them. And the Bible says there was peace in the land for, for 10 years. But then, there was this Ethiopian warrior 
who came in to battle against Judah, and he brought with him one million warriors. The Bible tells us that Asa had a much smaller army, but he took his army out to defend Judah against this Ethiopian and his one million warriors. But he didn't fight in his power. The Bible says that he cried out to God, and God answered him. And he defeated the Ethiopians. God gave him this incredible victory. And it was after this great battle that the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, this prophet who met King Asa on his way back to Jerusalem. And he delivered the message that we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. I want you to listen to what it says. Then the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Obed, and he went out to meet King Asa as he was returning from battle. Listen to me, Asa, he shouted. Listen, all you people of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. Whenever you seek him, you will find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. Now, don't miss that. If you abandon the Lord, he will abandon you. We can't expect God to continue to pour out his blessings on us when we turn our back on him. And then Azariah gave the people this example. He said, for a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach them, without the law to instruct them. But whenever they were in trouble and they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him out, they found him. During those dark times, it was not safe to travel. Problems troubled the people of every land. Nation fought against nation, city against city, for God was troubling them with every kind of problem. He is telling the people that, that this was a dark and terrible time. It was dangerous and evil and wicked. But then he says this, but as for you, be strong and courageous, for your work will be rewarded. Azariah is saying to Asa, keep doing what you're doing. Stand for righteousness. Stand for godliness. And God will bless you. When Asa heard this message from Azariah the prophet, he took courage, removed all the detestable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and in the towns he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. Now it's obvious that, that all of the idols, all of the shrines, all of the pagan things that were used in worship were not removed from the land. But when Asa heard this word, he took courage. And he went, went back through the land and he removed every detestable idol. Now that phrase detestable idol is one Hebrew word. And it's not the word for idol. It's simply the word for dirty, filthy, vile. And you need to understand that that's how God sees our idols. When you and I make idols and set them up in our life, God sees them as dirty, vile, filthy things. Then it goes on and it says, And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which stood in front of the entry room of the Lord's temple. Then Asa called together all the people of Judah and Benjamin, along with the people of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, who had settled among them. For many from Israel had moved to Judah during Asa's reign when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Did you get that? Don't miss that. There were many people who were in Israel that were now moving to Judah because they saw what God was doing in Judah. 
You need to understand that people are watching you. And when you take a stand for God, when you take a stand for what is right and what is true, there are other people who will draw courage from you and they will join you. Your courage will give them a spark of courage to do what is right. That's why it's so important to not wait for other people to take a stand. You see, that's the problem with too many of us. We're waiting for someone else to make the first move, to take the first stand, to do what's right before we join in. But the Bible tells us that when we take our stand for righteousness and holiness and what is true, then other people will draw courage from our courage. The people gathered at Jerusalem in late spring during the 15th year of Asa's reign. On that day, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 cattle, 7,000 sheep and goats from the plunder they had taken in the battle. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. They agreed that anyone who refused to seek the Lord, the God of Israel, would be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They took it seriously. They shouted out their oath of loyalty to the Lord with trumpets blaring, ram's horns sounding. All in Judah were happy about this covenant, for they had entered into it with all their heart. Now, did you get that? They entered into this covenant. Occasionally, people will ask, why do you have a, a membership covenant here at Northside? And I would say to them, as I say to you right now, because it's biblical. Us having a covenant is just simply following the example of the people of God who have gone before us. Uh, a covenant is when the people of God commit to one another and commit to God to do certain things. And this is what they were doing. They were making a covenant with one another and to God to seek God with all of their heart. It says they earnestly sought after God they found, and they found him. And the Lord gave them rest from their enemies on every side. King Asa even disposed his grandmother, Maka, from her position as queen mother because she had made an obscene Asherah pole. He cut down her obscene pole, broke it up, burned it in the Kidron Valley. She wasn't happy. Although the pagan shrines were not removed from Israel, remember this is Judah, not Israel. It's talking about the nation next door. Although they were not removed from Israel, Asa's heart, in Judah, remained completely faithful throughout his life. He brought into the temple of God the silver and gold and the various items that he and his father had dedicated. So there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Now the prophet's words are so important for us to hear today. Whenever you seek him, whenever you seek God, you will find him. Jeremiah was speaking for God when he said, If you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with all of your heart. I want you to understand, God wants a relationship with you more than you want a relationship with God. But if you really desire a relationship, a life-changing relationship, a relationship that means something, you have to seek him with all of your heart. That word seek is found 29 times in First and Second Chronicles. Seek the Lord with all of your heart. If we call upon the Lord and we seek his face. You see, when we seek God and we seek his face, we will see that he is a holy God, a righteous God. And this will cause us to turn to him in repentance, crying out, acknowledging our sin. Now, when Asa heard this message, the Bible tells us that he got an extra dose of courage. 
And he removed every idol that had not already been removed from the land. He repaired the altar, the place where they worshiped, and the people entered into this covenant with God. And don't miss this. It says all in Judah were happy. All. Everyone. Not just some. Not many. Not most. All were happy. Understand. You're never going to find true joy and true happiness apart from seeking God with all your heart. You need to understand that first of all. Joy and happiness comes when we seek God with every ounce of our strength and of our being. But you need to also understand something else. When we are seeking God with all of our heart, it is going to cause our nation to be in such a place that it brings joy to everyone. Did you get that? It's not just those of us who love the Lord passionately that are going to find joy. When the people who are seeking God with all of their heart are being used by God to bring revival and awakening to the land, it so transforms the land that it brings joy to everyone. And so they experienced a revival in the land. And I believe if God did it then, God can do it again. So here's the first step to revival. We have to humbly cry out to God, acknowledging our sin, confessing it to him. But here's the second step. We have to be willing to remove every idol from our lives. Did you hear me? We have to be willing to remove every idol from our life. If God is going to bring revival, then we have to remove the idols because idolatry is a big deal to God. The very second command that God gave his people in Exodus 20 was, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. And yet, tragically, it only took six weeks for the people of God to disobey the second command. Within six weeks, they were making idols for themselves. And throughout their history, as God's people, they continually, regularly made idols for themselves. Ezekiel, the prophet, said, repent, turn from your idols And stop your detestable sins. But understand, idolatry isn't just an Old Testament sin. The prophets, the apostles in the New Testament, John in 1 John said this, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now here's the problem. Most of us sitting here today would say, Well, this is one sin I don't have a problem with. I'm not guilty of idolatry, but you need to understand that idolatry isn't something in our past. Idolatry is something that each and every generation struggles with. Idols aren't simply something found in the past or in some third world country. Idols are found in each and every one of our hearts. I want you to write this down. You need to write this down. An idol is anything that takes our eyes off of God, draws our heart from God, or takes first place in our lives from God. An idol is anything that takes our eyes off God, draws our heart away from God, or takes first place in our lives from 
God. And understand, something doesn't have to be bad and evil and wicked to be an idol. You need to understand that, that there are many good things that become idols because they become the main thing. Did you hear me? An idol can be a good thing in your life that becomes a main thing. Listen, anything in creation that we put our hope in, we give our love to, we pledge our allegiance to, apart from our creator, is an idol. Anything in all of creation that we put our hope in, that we give our love to, that we pledge our allegiance to apart from our creator has become an idol in our life. So, what are your idols? What are your idols? I'm going to help you out. And I got some good news. Everybody's going to get mad at me. Everybody's going to get mad at me. Everybody's going to go out saying, what do we need to do to get rid of it? So what are our idols? Well, I want to start with what I believe is the most pressing idol in the church today. And that is the idol of family. Now some of you are saying, how in the world can family be an idol? Well, listen to what Jesus said. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. We think it's impossible to have our spouse or our children or our family as an idol, but it's not. When we put them and our commitment to them ahead of our commitment to Christ and his church, our commitment to our family has become an idol. Asa was so committed to God that he removed his mother from her role as queen mother. Did you hear me? He removed her. He took her idols and he smashed them, broke them, and burned them. And the reason he did that is because his relationship with God and his desire for holiness and righteousness even was more important than his relationship with his mother. He wasn't going to allow anything or anyone to come before his Lord. So let me ask you a question. Does your family or your family activities come before the Lord? There are so many ways we can do that today. But perhaps the most prevalent is, and I'm going to meddle, our children's activities. Don't tune me out. Tune me out. It's an idol. I'm telling you, I'm warning you, if you've already put up your defenses, you've got an idol. So hear me out, okay? My brother has a son, my nephew, he's a gifted soccer player. He, he's going to be able to play in college. He plays not only for his high school team, he plays on a traveling club team as well. Um, but he never misses church at his church on Sunday morning. If they have a game out of town and it causes him to have to miss, he'll miss the game. He never misses church on Wednesday night, his youth group, for practice. If they have practice on Wednesday night, 
He doesn't miss because he feels like his student ministry is that important to him. And guess what? He starts. He plays. You know why? He's good enough. He's good enough. There, there are some of you here today who say, my, my kid will never get an opportunity to play in college if I don't let them miss eight, ten times a year for this traveling ball. That's just not true. If your kid is good enough to play, they're good enough to play. All too often, what we're doing when we do this is we're showing our children what is really important in our life. My brother said this. He said, parents, your children will never prioritize what you marginalize. Did you hear me? Amen or oh my? Your children will never prioritize what you marginalize. We say we love Jesus with all of our heart, but, but yet we can't see Jesus. The only way we can show that love to Jesus is our commitment to his church, his bride. And yet oftentimes our commitment to his church, his bride, is way down on the totem pole. The Bible says it this way. How, how can you love one you can't see when you can't love the ones you do see? Now, understand, if this isn't a big deal for you and you've discovered a way to make it work, then okay, you shouldn't be offended. But if you're offended, the reason you're offended is because this is biting you. And I want to warn you, for most of us who are anywhere near my age, we didn't have all this travel club ball when we were growing up. I think we're okay. I, I don't think I'm missing out. I don't think I missed out. Maybe, just maybe, listen to me. This is a new phenomenon that our enemy is using in his strategy to capture our kids. Maybe not. Time will tell. But I'm just warning you. Be careful. If, if you're here right now and you've got kids that just have nothing to do with church, then you need to at the very least ask yourself, did they really see that it was a big deal to me? If they did, well, they've got free will. But if they didn't, don't grovel and just get all guilty, confess it to God and move on and seek to restore them to the kingdom and the kingdom's work. The idol of family. Let me give you another one. The idol of politics. Oh my. No politician, no political party can come before our commitment to Christ. No politician, no political party. When we put our political allegiance Above our allegiance to God and his word, we have politics as an idol. Now, I'm going to shoot straight with you. If you're here and you're a Republican and you try to make excuses for some of the things President Trump says and some of the ways that he mocks people, you have an idol of politics in your life. Did you hear me? Don't get mad. Get right. Because the way that he talks to people... The way he mocks people 
is ungodly. It is not right. I support our president. I'm just here to tell you right now, I'm voting for our president. But I do not support the way he has acted toward people. And I cannot. John the Baptist ended up in prison and lost his head because he spoke out against the ungodliness of King Herod. And it doesn't matter who the king is or the president is. We have to be willing to say wrong is wrong. And what about you, my Democrat friends? Oh, listen to me. If you're a Democrat, how in the world can you turn a blind eye to your party's view on abortion? Abortion on demand, murdering innocent kids. Vice President Biden has said that his plan is to keep abortion legal until the ninth month. That's what he has said. There is no way that you can have a biblical worldview and support that. If you were watching the town hall on Thursday, you saw a question that was given to him by a woman who happens to be married to someone who was in the Democratic Party in office in Pennsylvania, and she asked this question, what are you going to do to help protect my eight-year-old transgender child? Eight-year-old transgender child? Can I just tell you, your eight-year-old isn't old enough to determine their transgender. That is foolish. And if that's where we are as a nation, we are in deep trouble. And so understand, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you've got to stand up and speak out against the hypocrisy that goes on. You can't turn a blind eye or politics has become an idol for you. And by the way, if on your social media page, the overwhelming majority of the things you post have to do with politics and not about the grace and mercy of God in your life and what he's doing for you, then maybe politics is an idol. If you get ticked off and upset at politicians who hold the views that are in opposition to what you believe and yet you're not on your face before God crying out in tears asking God to touch their heart, then maybe you have an idol in your life. The idol of family, the idol of politics. What about the idol of pleasure? The Bible says in the last days, men will love pleasure more than godliness. Now, let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. The Bible, the Bible tells us that God gives us everything that we need for our pleasure, for our enjoyment. God created us for his good pleasure, the Bible says. Pleasure is a good thing. But when it becomes a God thing, it's an idol. And there are some of us who are addicted to pleasure. How do I know? Man, we DVR our shows. We can't miss an episode of our shows, but man, we can miss church. What about sports and our stats? We know the stats on all of our teams. We can spout off the stats of our favorite players, but we hardly can repeat a Bible verse from memory. What's wrong? What's wrong? And the thing is, is good things like Sex can become God things, and they've become an idol, the idol of pleasure, the idol of financial security. Job said, have I put my trust in money or felt secure because of my gold? Have I gloated about my wealth and all that I own? 
Listen, if you're putting your hope in your 401k, your bank account, or the money you have rather than in God, then financial security is your idol. There's nothing wrong with money. And let me tell you, the Bible speaks often about financial wisdom and making wise financial choices. But when you're putting your hope in finances, it's become an idol. And you can do that whether you're poor or whether you're rich. What about the idol of religion? We have the language, we've got the look, we know the music, but we're not living a transformed life. We have a form of godliness, but we haven't experienced the power of God in our life. And when we are going through the motions without the power flowing through us, our religion has become an idol. We sit down at the table and we pride ourselves because we say grace before we eat. But all we do is utter the same words over and over and over by rote. And we think that we're spiritual. The idol of religion. What about the idol of success? Oh, wow. And we're in a success-driven culture, aren't we? And man, it's infiltrated the church. The 1970s, we had the church growth movement start. And we had all of these people writing books on how you grow a church. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of good principles. Some of them were biblical. But a lot of them were were, to be quite honest with you, practices of the world that had, you know, Bible emphasis on them. And, and what you need to understand is this. I can't grow a church. You can't grow a church. Only God can grow the church. Did you hear me? God grows the church. I, I may be able to attract a crowd, you may be able to find someone else who can attract a crowd and a bigger crowd. But that doesn't grow the church. Only God can grow the church. And the thing that we see in Scripture is every time Jesus had a big crowd following him, he would usually say something that would offend most of them, and they would turn and quit following him. I mean, if you want to get Jesus' book, it would be how to make your church smaller. The idol of success. Now here's the deal. I don't know what your idols are. I know what mine have been. I know what I have struggled with. I know what I've had to bring before the altar and smash before God. But I don't know what your altars are. But here's what I know. I know that in the Bible, idolatry is equated with spiritual adultery. You hear me? The Old Testament prophets said that idolatry is committing adultery against God. We are to be married to God. And yet when we commit idolatry, we are having sex with other lovers. Let me ask you a question. How many of us would want to be intimate with a spouse that we know is cheating on us with other lovers. We would have no desire. And yet we think that God wants to be intimate with us when we're cheating on him with all of these other lovers. 
family, politics, financial security, pleasure, religion, success. Name your idol. And here's what you need to understand. These idols that we bring into our life that may not be that dangerous at the beginning of our relationship with them, before long will begin to dominate us, will take control of us. And then we will define, we will discover that they have deformed us. And all of a sudden we're like the idol that we're worshiping. And they will eventually destroy us. So let me ask you a question. What are your idols? And what are you willing to do? I, I, I can only deal with my idols. You have to deal with yours. But here's what I know. Until you get serious about the idols in your life and you're willing to take them before the altar and smash them before God, getting rid of them completely, you don't toy with idols, you destroy idols. And until you're willing to do that, we will never experience revival. Revival is serious. We seriously need it, but it comes at a cost. We've got to destroy our idols. We don't have time to sit here for an hour and come before the altar asking God to just cleanse us. But what I want you to do right now is I want you to just close your eyes. And I want you to take a moment or two and just ask God to begin to show you those idols in your life. If you already know them, then I challenge you, don't hold on to them, don't think about it, smash them, get rid of them, acknowledge them, confess them, get right. Just take a moment to do that right now. Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for all of the altars, idols we have built in our life. We have bowed down to and worshipped. Set them up. We've made them first in our life. Forgive us. I pray, Father, that over this next week, you will show your people all of the idols that have crept into our life unaware. Father, I pray that we'll have the courage, the conviction, and the desire to smash those idols on your altar. Oh, God, please. Please, Father God, do a work. Father, I pray that we're ready 
pray that we're willing to do what we need to do to experience your hand of mercy and grace and favor again. Make us into a people you can use. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.